we always hear about like the conflict aspect, like the wars and the resettlement aspect, but I think it's the familial relationships and what goes on there that can sometimes be more traumatizing. It has a longer lasting effect, I think. And just how family relationships change permanently. Welcome to Beyond Soundbites podcast. I'm Jacob Mel. This is episode 18, the second part of a little sequence where we consider the significance of the Refugee Act of 1980, signed into law 40 years ago, through the eyes of one of its beneficiaries, 26-year-old Trong Tran. In the last episode, we learned the basic shape of her grandfather's story and reviewed the history, conflicts, and global migration trends that allowed him and his family to resettle to the Chicago suburb of Wheaton in the early 1990s. Now we'll back up the timeline and zoom in to understand how Trong's family navigated the challenges and opportunities presented by resettlement. When Can Tran first learned that he qualified for resettlement to the U.S. because he had been held in a communist re-education camp in Vietnam after the war, the idea scared him. He thought it was a government trick to take him back into custody. But once he saw a cousin go through the process, he was assured it was legitimate and began the application process himself. In the meantime, Can's daughter, Trong's mother, then in her early 20s, had fallen in love. That complicated the matter of leaving Vietnam. My mom was pregnant with me. Um, but my parents weren't married, and my mom really wanted to stay in Vietnam and be with my dad. But my grandpa didn't see a future for her if she stayed. I think it was really difficult for her to leave my dad and come here because my, my dad, was they were ready to get married. He went to my grandpa and asked for her hand in marriage, and he said no because he my grandpa wanted her to, to come to America with him. And even my grandparents on my dad's side, you know, tried to have a meeting with my, my mom's dad and like reason with him, but he, he was just like, no. Um, and I think having me or her getting pregnant was like their last effort to keep her there, yeah. Yeah, so my family was kind of divided on that, and I think there was a lot of drama surrounding it because some of my uncles supported my mom and, you know, wanted her to stay and raise a family, but um, other people wanted her to leave also just because the opportunity is better. In the end, Chong's mom heeded her father's desire and went to the U.S. Her dad stayed behind in Vietnam. According to her aunt, Chong's father even had a plan to forge documents that would allow him to follow them to the United States, but it didn't work. He was heartbroken. My grandma said he cried for a long time, just like held on a pic- onto a picture of me and my mom and just cried, like incessantly when we left. Year after year, Trong grew and adapted to her new country. Far away from her dad, her family's life took on the patterns and routines common to many newly arrived immigrant and refugee families. We 
moved to Wheaton, which is a predominantly white neighborhood um, and high income neighborhood. But we also had a pretty decent Vietnamese community there. And so we had like the financial and like material support from World Relief and the church that was there and the really good school systems and like I was enrolled in Head Start. And so these are programs that are set up to help people like us, but also, you know, we had like our little Vietnamese community and we would like share dinners, you know, help each other out, take loans from your neighbor, your friend when you're struggling. Her mom worked overnights at a factory that builds sprinkler systems, then at a laundromat owned by a Korean couple. Eventually, she opened her own nail salon. At first, the family lived in a two-bedroom apartment. Trong, her mom, and her aunt slept in one bedroom, her grandparents, and later her younger sister, in the other, and her uncle on a cot in the living room. My grandma grew up really poor. Like, she grew up in a really small village in probably like a hut with dirt floors. And my mom, she was one of 12 kids and they definitely did not have 12 bedrooms. So everyone was always, you know, piling in one bed. So I think that apartment was, it was definitely an upgrade. Places down Crescent this way, there's like a Starbucks that a lot of people hang out at and restaurants down here. There's like a hot dog place now. One day, Trong drove me around the Chicago suburbs of Wheaton and Glen Ellen and described her childhood and adolescent stomping grounds. There used to be this Chinese restaurant called Chin's. This is the Wheaton Library. My mom would take me there a lot to rent Disney movies. Across the street here is the church where my grandpa would take English classes. And I also um, would go to an after-school program at that church. Even in his old age, Trong's grandpa, Ken, was so dedicated to his English classes that his teachers eventually gave him a certificate of completion just so he would stop coming. They were worried about him walking to and from class on the icy sidewalks during the winter months. Yeah, so I would just run to the ATM, and I knew the PIN number and everything. Another routine and one of Trong's chores as a kid was running errands for her grandpa to the bank across the alley from their apartment. My grandpa would take us to Burger King sometimes, you know, when he got his uh, monthly allowance. Well, I would get uh, their, what is it, their kids' meals and a slushie. Driving down Main Street in Wheaton, we pass large historic homes with big front porches, American flags, ivy climbing up brick chimneys. Just after a large 1970s-era church building with a towering steeple set back from the road behind some pine trees, we pull into the apartment complex where Trong's family lived until she was six years old. And these are the apartments we can drive. There's four motel-style brick buildings with two levels of apartments, mostly full of immigrant and refugee families still. Small children with dark hair and dark eyes play on the sidewalks and walkways under the watchful eyes of their mothers. Crooked AC units hang in half of the windows. Laundry hangs from high railings. When we lived downstairs on the first floor, there was a family upstairs that um, they were also 
refugees, I think, and my grandparents were really close to them. And then we also had people living over here, like, in, like, every building there was at least one family that we knew who was Vietnamese. Behind the apartment complex, a park stretches westward to a playground and some basketball courts. A lot of places to run to and kids were always out, like biking and stuff. There was more of a path here probably, but... So this is the community pool and then the park is that way. You can't even see it from here. That's kind of how far it was. And as a little three or four year old, I was just running around by myself with a beeper. <laughs> the beeper was Trong's mother's strategy for keeping track of her. And it seems to have become the subject of a famous story and source of amusement about the family's early years in the United States. Trong would play around the complex with neighbors and friends. Whenever the beeper went off, she knew it was time to go running home. The community of other refugee and immigrant families was key to Trong's sense of place during those early years. Going to school, you know, I didn't always feel like I belonged because I was poor. I was an immigrant. I went to preschool and didn't know any English, but I could, you know, always go home and, like, be comfortable in my community. And I had other Vietnamese kids to play with. Even while her family adjusted to life in the U.S. and laid roots for the coming decades, there were rifts that took time to heal. After all, Trong's grandpa had brought her mother to the other side of the world against her will. I don't know how long it took her to get used to the idea or to accept the idea that she was going to move and be here. She holds grudges because to this day, she has favorites with her siblings my and like my uncles and aunts. Like she like remembers like who was on her side and who wasn't. <laughs> Even though, you know, it's all past and she's okay with it now. It's just, um, I think, the loyalty aspect of it. <laughs> Aside from a couple visits back to Vietnam at a young age, Trong grew up mostly knowing her dad as a voice over the phone. I think that was before Skype or video, so we would use calling cards. Yeah, that was back in the day when you had to use calling cards to call international. Um, so I would talk to him, I don't know how often, like maybe once a month or something, my mom would call him um, and we'd speak on the phone. But, you know, I was like a kid and like, I'd be like, hi, like, how are you? Like, we, wouldn't, we weren't having these deep conversations, you know? In Vietnam, Trong's dad worked as a jeweler. Sometimes he would send necklaces or bracelets that he had made to Trong and her mom as gifts. After nine years of dreaming, he was finally able to migrate to the U.S., first joining his parents and other family members who had settled in Atlanta. I remember picking him up from the airport. He flew into Atlanta where my grandparents live. And I was there for the summer. To be reunited with him was kind of a weird experience because I felt disconnected and I knew, you know, 
he's my dad and I love him, but he had already missed so much of my life. Soon, her dad came to the Chicago suburbs to reunite with Chong's mom, and they were all together. Chong was 10 years old at the time, the same age her mom was when her father returned after seven years in a communist prison. Despite the awkwardness of trying to love and be loved by someone who she didn't really know, Chong was excited. She had been waiting for years to have a dad, to be raised by two parents. She felt proud to go to the mall with him, talk about him to her friends. But there were challenges. Her parents' union, a decade delayed, wasn't the dream they had imagined. They tried, but three years later, her mom and dad separated again. Because they had been apart a long time too, and they'd both changed in a lot of ways, so it just didn't work out, and then he moved back to Atlanta. I think at the time when he left, I didn't really understand why, and it wasn't really ever, like, communicated to me why. So we kind of lost contact for a while and actually didn't really reconnect again until I was 20. Hi, this is Todum. I work with volunteers at Ward Relief in the Chicagoland area. I'm Heather. I train and equip volunteers in Sacramento, California. I'm Catherine in Memphis, Tennessee. Andrew in the Fox Valley of Wisconsin. I'm Kelly in High Point, North Carolina. We hope you are enjoying this story. Chang's family is just one of thousands of immigrant families across the U.S. who have been forced or made the painful choice to leave their home and whose greatest hope is to find a safe place to rebuild their lives. Sadly, today, this hope remains unattainable for too many as they struggle to overcome unexpected vulnerabilities and systemic barriers to integration. Make sure to stick around to hear more about how you can join World Relief in creating communities of love and welcome. You can also learn more at worldrelief.org volunteer. After foreign influencers cut the country in half in what was supposed to be a temporary condition of the 1954 Geneva Convention, it took Vietnam more than 25 years, with much more foreign interference stoking the flames, to begin to unify itself. What does it take for a country to heal after so many years of fighting? What does it take for a family in the diaspora of that conflict to mend divisions within itself? My dad had been trying to reach out to me for a long time, but I was just not that responsive. And my aunt then sat me down and started telling me stories, like the story of us coming to the U.S. and his story of you know, trying to follow us and all that. So all of that I didn't f find out until later. And then I was like, okay, 
maybe I should talk to him. A decade after first reuniting with her dad when he initially came to the U.S., Trong found herself back at the Atlanta airport, now a young woman, preparing to see her dad and grandparents again. It was seven years before, from when I was 13 to when I was 20, before we saw each other again. I just remember being really nervous, like, being in the airport, going to meet them, seeing them for the first time. Like, I had two of my little cousins who came with to pick me up from the airport that I had never met before. And when I was there, I remember, because I would be sleeping in, like, the guest bedroom at my grandma's house, and my dad, he, like, came in in the early in the morning when I was still sleeping, and I he was just, like, standing over my bed, like, crying. <laughs> so I think for him it was really a happy time, but also really hard. Because I can't imagine not just, like, being separated from my family for that long and not being able to get in contact and the time that was spent just like missing his family is really, really sad. The more she learned of her dad's story, the more Trong's empathy and understanding grew, particularly the earlier part of his life when his girlfriend, his baby daughter, and two of his brothers all left the country, but he had to stay behind. I think that experience has really shaped who my dad is now because he's so reserved. I don't know, everyone calls him like the grandpa of the house because my other uncles and aunts are pretty like upbeat and they like to joke around and talk and are just outgoing and social friendly people. My dad's not like that. <laughs> I think he's kind of got a shell around him. Trong's dad still lives in Atlanta, where he's worked as an insurance broker and a nail technician at a salon. So I go visit like once or twice a year. I'm going this weekend, actually. And I'll stay for a couple of days. And my dad and I talk weekly. It's just still like this distant relationship, I feel like, because we've both missed so much of each other's lives. It's really hard to build a relationship when you can't see them all the time. You know, like I, I can't see him every day, so it's, it's hard to be really close. But I think we have a pretty good relationship at this point. Chong double majored in molecular and cell biology and psychology in undergrad, then worked a few years in the medical field. The summer I met her, she was halfway through a master's in public health program at Yale. She was also finishing up an internship with World Relief, the same organization that helped her family get settled in Wheaton, and whose Memorial Day float her aunt had pointed out at the parade all those years before. The path from the colonial Vietnam her grandpa was born into to where Trong is today is full of twists and pivots, lows and highs. The Refugee Act of 1980 created a legal pathway for them, 
World Relief supported the logistics of their resettlement. Countless other events and decisions contribute to the reason that Trong is here. One thing that's not lost on her is the host of characters who have loved and walked with her along the way. I think in some ways, because I was born out of wedlock and we didn't have any money, some people didn't think that I would make it this far. But I think I had the support of a lot of people in my family, not just my mom. I think if it was just my mom raising me, it would have been really tough. But I had my grandparents, my grandpa, you know, who was really supportive, like helped with my, with my education, taught me French, taught me math. My aunt, who was always around when my mom wasn't, to like pick me up from school and all this stuff. I think it's true that like it takes a village to raise a child and I think that is what attributed to my success. I hope Trong's voice and her willingness to offer her story has taken you beyond the kind of sound bites that often shape our perception of who displaced people are and how they relate long-term to the societies that welcome them. I also hope that you'll feel inspired to support refugee and immigrant families with your own skills, resources, and time. So before we close, we'll hear from one more person. Do I need to introduce my role? The introduction? No, I'll put that in. Okay. Um, in the narration, it'll be like, hear more about This me. is Taffy Webb, World Release Volunteer Mobilization Specialist for the U.S. She took some time to share with us about the role of volunteers and how you can get involved. So one interesting element of this story that we see is that Trong was so young when she came to the U.S. that she didn't really always realize the role that World Relief was playing in their family's adjustment process. She kind of learned it later. But it's cool how we see World Relief and local churches kind of popping up at key moments in her family's story to support them in different ways. So tell us a little bit more about World Relief and how you work together with churches and community volunteers to provide that environment of belonging for refugee and immigrant families. Sure. Uh, World Relief is a global Christian humanitarian organization that brings sustainable solutions to the world's greatest problems of disasters, extreme poverty, violence, oppression, and mass displacement. Here in the U.S., we particularly focus on the area of mass displacement by partnering with local churches and community members in order to bring hope, healing, and transformation to those in vulnerable situations. And we do this through three main areas. First, we provide vital services through partnering with our churches and community members to ensure that some of those most basic needs are met for our immigrant neighbors. And these include things like legal services, English as a second language classes, youth tutoring, employment services, and counseling. We also focus on building just and welcoming communities. We provide information to churches and communities across the U.S to inform views, find common ground, and address inaccurate beliefs. We work on equipping through sermons, book studies, subject matter expert interviews, and other areas 
And we do this so that we can speak together passionately and accurately into these difficult subjects around immigration in the U.S. And together with our partners, we focus on changing systems and resulting injustices that uh, just add to marginalizing refugees and other immigrants in the U.S. And uh, our third area of focus is to bring people together. Uh, this is an area we are extremely passionate about because we see the power uh, that relationships have in our communities. And so we connect churches and community members with immigrant families to foster these transformative relationships where both those that are welcoming in the community and those that are just arriving uh, focus on this long-term uh, flourishing uh, and finding a sense of unity and belonging. Another thing that I think comes through strongly in Trong's story as she shared it is kind of a multi-generational reach of it. So starting with uh, her grandpa and kind of his visions and hopes that he had for his family um, when he was in Vietnam and through everything that he experienced there. And then all the way through to seeing her having grown up here in the U.S. and gone through school and then just completing her master's uh, at the end of the story. So tell us a little bit more about how World Relief kind of invites people to be in it with families across that multi-generational aspect of their journey. That's a great question. World Relief provides uh, specific services, but wants to make sure that we also focus on the needs of the parents and the children alike. And as we engage volunteers and churches in this, uh, specifically when we're presented with a specific crisis, like a natural disaster, or global pandemic, we see those barriers uh, rise up even more across generations. And our churches and volunteers step into those spaces with our immigrant neighbors to say, okay, things like food insecurity or barriers in digital literacy that affect the whole family, how can we come alongside and provide that support? So, we see food distribution happening. We see uh, classes uh, for digital literacy, education in the community. Uh, but it's not only done by the existing uh, community itself, but we see the different generations, especially uh, an opportunity for youth to step into this area in their knowledge of the digital world and what they can bring to their parents and kind of bridging that gap as well. And so it really is a community effort uh, as we band together to address those barriers that sometimes even become more present uh, across generations. And for people who are listening, maybe listening kind of right in this moment as this episode is coming out in September 2020, or who may be listening in the future, what are some ways that they could jump in and support immigrant and refugee families? A great way to get connected is to visit our website at worldrelief.org and go to the Get Involved section. There you can find ways to engage both as an individual and as a church. And we invite you to use your time, strengths, and resources to welcome, support, and advocate for families like Trongs. This is a uh, great way to get connected. There are multiple ways uh, that you can engage uh, yourself, your family, your community. Another way that you can really dive in is to join the PATH. The PATH is a brand new community of World Relief Monthly donors who have chosen to embark on a journey for lasting change. 
These people care so deeply about fighting against these barriers, the suffering, the systemic injustice that's there. And uh, they do this by either helping an immigrant family access technology or providing legal services to refugee families. Uh, so these pathmakers commit to walking towards those who feel like the rest of the world is walking away. So really intentional and joining uh, the path. You can do that as easy as going to our website at worldrelief.org forward slash the path and uh, join in and see that long-term change that we're looking for, that lasting change. Thank you, Taffy, for taking some time and talking with us. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks so much. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Beyond Soundbites. In the next episode, we'll visit Central America and the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. There, we'll hear firsthand from some of the people who have been most affected by the massive changes that the current administration has made to the U.S. asylum system since 2017. And for this, many, many children are in the United States. Well, they're not in the United States. They're in the border area. And for those who have arrived, they're bringing them back to Mexico or another place. Now they're going to send them to Guatemala. Beyond Soundbites is created in collaboration with the Refugee Highway Partnership North America, a network of churches, ministries, and individuals supporting refugees and asylum seekers across the U.S. and Canada. Other organizational supporters include the Refugee Language Program, Exodus World Service, Tucson Refugee Ministry, Global Community Partners, Abounding Service, and World Relief. Griffin Jackson provided editorial support on this episode, John and Valerie Guerra created the theme music. The rest of the songs are by Chris Dingman. This episode was mixed by Matt McQueen at Gem City Studios in Jellicoe, Tennessee. Special thanks to Trong Tran for sharing her story over the course of several meetings with me during the summer of 2019.